Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. This episode features Hannah Abeza, the director of marketing at Uberflip. Flip content into customers. Hey, Hannah. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Let's start things off by getting to know where you're from, what did you study, and how did your passion in entrepreneurship develop? Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, so where I'm from, um, well, I I mean, grew up for the most part, went to school in Ottawa, um, and that's where I kind of met you guys. Um, originally from the Middle East, I was actually born uh, born in Kuwait, uh, have a lot of family in Jordan, and kind of came here when I was super young. Um, and uh, now I'm actually in Toronto, so kind of made the move from Ottawa to Toronto a couple of years ago. Um, and in terms of what I studied, so when I went to school, um, I actually had two different paths that were available to me. Um, and one was going to be really along sort of like the health, biology, kinesiology route. And the other one was totally down the business route. So uh, I ended up doing a commerce degree. Um, and I ended up doing it with a focus in both finance and marketing, um, which is a super random combination or so I'm told. But uh, I actually think they, they complement each other really well. I don't know. Um, just you know, from from the perspective of how much more metrics driven and um, numbers driven marketing has gotten, I think having a finance degree actually helps a lot with it. So, yeah, absolutely. And how did you get uh, started in startups? When did you, what was your first uh, you know lemonade stand, so to speak? Um, it honestly, it was actually a lemonade stand. <laughs> it was uh, when I was a kid. I remember. Um, we used to put up this uh, lemonade stand right at, right like at the front of my laneway, and it was myself and um, our neighbors down the street. And we did it a couple times where we kind of set things up, and we actually made pretty decent money. Um, but not knowing any better, I gave all of the profits to our neighbors down the street. Um, much to my parents, like, you know, horror when, when they heard that. And my rationale was that I was getting an allowance at the time and they weren't. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So why shouldn't they get like more of the money? Cause I'm already getting an allowance, but I quickly learned that that's not how profit sharing should work. So <laughs> I've definitely revamped that thinking since yeah. then. But yeah, it was very literally a lemonade stand. Call it social enterprise. It works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I guess like during school or, or right after school, before getting into into some of the other startups that we'll talk about later, um, you actually managed a lot of marketing and business operations for a few different martial arts businesses. Um, some of the programs that that you ran and oversaw kind of resulted in in some pretty crazy signups, forty two percent increase in profits within within six months, uh, and this was at a national level. So. 
you know, how did you get into into managing martial art businesses, and and what were some of these campaigns, and and how did you track the progress? Yeah, it, it's definitely a little bit random. So, I mean, if you if I just kind of step back a little bit and kind of you go from the lemonade stand all the <laughs> way through, like you know, to to school and then studying business, and then at the same time that I was actually studying um, university, I was actually also um, training and teaching at one of the martial arts studios that I I wound up managing at, and that's something that I kind of did since I was younger. I think I started teaching martial arts when I was fourteen or fifteen, um, and at the same time, I kind of started getting into the business side of things there. So as I was doing my degree, I got to apply a lot of that stuff to sort of the one location where I was sort of managing and teaching out of. Um, and then when I graduated, I kind of had a unique opportunity to come in and help on the business standpoint across multiple locations. Um, and I kind of had that unique sort of perspective of somebody who actually knew all of the players and actually knew the martial arts industry because I'd been teaching and training for so long and I also had sort of the business training to kind of go with it. So the interesting thing about that sort of um, chain of martial arts schools is that the structure was a little bit all over the place. Um, they were licensed as opposed to being sort of a true franchise. Um, they were at the point where the people running each individual location were incredibly talented martial arts instructors but didn't always have sort of the business background to kind of take things to the next level so um, that's where I sort of came in and I um, for a while was dealing with sort of the collective marketing across um, a majority of the locations and then uh, I was also general manager of two of the locations um, and um, ended up dealing with a lot of marketing campaigns but then also got into a lot of um, operational stuff and programming and it kind of got to a point where towards sort of the end of my I guess full-time involvement there my job ended up really being okay how do we find ways to increase revenue so you know one of the things that we did for example would be um, you know we ended up partnering up with a nutrition and weight loss system and we ended up installing uh, like a nutrition and weight loss clinic within each martial arts studio. Hindsight being 2020, it makes perfect sense. People are going to like a martial arts studio to take kickboxing, you lose weight, you know, mm -hmm. stay fit. Um, why wouldn't they also take advantage of that? So that was sort of a supplementary income program that actually ended up really ramping up revenue, um, you know, without putting any extra strain on overhead and on costs and on staffing and on on capacity and within each martial arts class because it was a totally different stream of revenue. Um, and then once that was sort of up and running, sort of passed that off to somebody else to manage and then I was kind of on to the next thing. So it was kind of like little startups within within the organization and finding different ways to sort of maximize revenue. So like the thing after that would be, okay, why don't we now um, do something called an after-school program within the martial arts studios. So, you know, that's something that now is super popular, but at the time not a lot of people were doing it. Um, so what we did was we said, okay, we have a certain amount of off hours um, where people aren't coming in and they're not doing classes and the area is free and, you know, there's really nothing going on here. How do we leverage that and turn that into a revenue stream? Well, there's all these kids that, you know, where parents are paying for after-school care and child care. Yep. Um, why not start an after-school program? where we actually had the buses drop kids off directly at our facility almost like they would at a daycare or an after-school program. We would, you know, give them a snack, we'd run a martial arts program, we'd help them do their homework and their parents would come and pick them up. So now all of a sudden 
you go from getting um, you know X amount of revenue per kid that's just coming in for a couple classes a week, which was usually around 100 bucks a month, to up to four or five hundred bucks of revenue per kid that was coming in an after school program. So um, really, just finding ways like that to implement programs that complemented what you're already doing, mm-hmm. um, leveraged sort of your assets and your sort of capabilities beyond what you're already doing in order to be able to supplement that revenue. So, um, you know, those were a couple of the programs we implemented. A lot of the other stuff, though, that I did there, um, especially in the earlier years, um, I mean, you mentioned the 42% increase in profits um, in the first six months that that was earlier on. And really, that was just a matter of taking a look at the existing revenue streams that we had and plugging in holes. Like, and I know that sounds that sounds almost simplistic, but um, to give you an example, uh, you know, one of the things that they were doing on a pretty regular basis is they'd have these, you know, memberships where they were goal-oriented memberships. So, you know, you would sign up to, you know, train up to your, say, you know, green belt or whatever it would be, and the the idea was that you would pay X amount of money, and you know, you'd train until you got there, and if it took you a little longer, that's okay because you're paying for the goal of green belt as opposed to paying for a specific time frame. Well, the problem with that was that their their average time for a student to get to green belt was way off given what people were actually paying and how long they were taking. So, um, so that was a big part of like what I did when I went in there is like really just analyze the metrics and <laughs> took a look took a look at where the holes were um, and figured out you know how do we how do we sort of fix our revenue streams so that we're plugging all of those holes and um, that that's almost easier than trying to come up with something from scratch because you're just really literally just you know patching where you where you see a leak basically so did your ability to see these leaks come from the fact that you'd been teaching or from being an outsider to to an older industry or a combination of the two um, it's definitely a combination too. I think a big thing was the sort of having those new skills applied to um, an, an older business model. Um, because I mean, in the early years, I mean, nobody was nobody within that industry was tracking like their their data or their metrics at all, right? Um, they weren't really they didn't have a pulse on you know how many new students they were having per month. They didn't have a pulse on what their retention rate was. Which you know, if you're in sort of a tech startup up our SaaS business, you're going to call that churn. But when we were looking at it, we were calling it, you know, retention just because it was sort of a little bit of a different way of looking at it. And when I compare the stats um, and the spreadsheets that we put together for that business with sort of some of the stuff that we're doing now um, or that I that I had done for any of the sort of tech startups that I've worked with, um, it's, it's all the same stuff. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like the language is different. Um, the way you're going to look at the data is a little bit different depending on obviously the company. But um, it's it, that that experience with sort of the martial arts studios um, was probably the best quote-unquote MBA I ever got because I was able to apply those skills right away. And the cool part is because I was both teaching still pretty regularly, but then also making decisions at sort of the upper management level, Mm -hmm. um, I would make those decisions and then I would implement them right away. So you get that crazy fast feedback loop between like the decisions that you're making and like literally implementing them that night in a class that you're teaching <laughs> with, you know, feedback from people, like real people, right? So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so it's uh, is, is definitely an interesting and unique experience. 
<laughs> do, do you have any like tips or insights in, into the types of tools you use to start tracking those metrics and and how did you measure you know some of your your online or or I guess digital marketing efforts into offline marketing yeah that was super tricky um, I mean initially we were just doing everything via spreadsheets um, and and that was a big part of it what really became um, indispensable was the database that we ended up using in order to manage our manage our students so um, you know for that particular industry there's a lot of customized databases that essentially act as CRMs um, and most of them nowadays are built out enough that you can do a lot of that tracking directly through that sort of CRM that you're using. Um, I know uh, Perfect Mind is a really good one if you're sort of in that industry and they have several different sort of customized packages for those offline businesses like they'll have one specifically for yoga studios and they'll have one specifically for martial arts studios. Um, Champions Way is another really good one. So there's a lot of that type of software that you know now when I look at it I think holy crap I would have loved to have had something like that 10 years ago or 12 years ago <laughs> right sure. um, so it was a very manual process for us initially um, and we were really lucky too like we actually had um, our sort of flagship if you want to call it location was in um, sort of between the Stittsville, Canada area, you know, in Ottawa. Um, so a lot of our students were actually a lot of engineers. Hmm. And we actually had um, one of our instructors, uh, her and her husband were both engineers, and they actually put together the first iteration of our database for us using FileMaker Pro. And it was awesome. It was honestly, it was better than anything that else that was commercial at the time. And they basically just set it up for us. And um, that was really, it was a lot of makeshift tools that we sort of put together um, to really understand the pulse of the business and to be able to get that 360 degree view. And it's never perfect with offline businesses. I mean, I remember one of the things that we were so stringent about with all of our staff. I mean, any time we would bring somebody in to train them on, you know, how to talk to leads when they'd call in or when they'd walk in through the front door, is you have to ask how they heard about us. Like, it's yeah. the most important question because it's not like, you know, you can pop into Google Analytics and find out. I mean, we, we get some of that data, but, you know, very... Very little of that was actionable because at the time, the majority of people were really reaching out either by phone or dropping by and then the occasional sort of submission form yeah. via the website until we started really focusing on the website. Um, and the problem with that is, number one, obviously, inevitably, there's a margin of error because people forget to ask, how did you hear about us? Um, and then number two... People don't remember, like, or they think they do, but they're completely wrong. So I actually ran an experiment where I included, so we had sort of a drop down where, you know, the staff sort of, when somebody would call in for information about one of our programs, um, you know, whoever answered the phone would have almost like a script that they would follow. And then they get to the, how did you hear about us question? And there's a few different options that you can hear from, that you can choose from. One of the options that I added in there was television. So as soon as I added that option in, we saw a huge increase in the number of people saying that they heard about us through a television ad. Now, here's the thing. We never ran television ads. <laughs> so it's like, and it was a pretty, I can't remember the exact numbers. It was a pretty large number of people that were like, oh yeah, I saw you on TV. And I just, I saw that and I just shook my head. I mean, like we never, not once ran a television ad and it was crazy to see some of the, some of the data that we were getting. It's pretty funny. Was it yeah. like a competitor gym that was, just had a TV ad that 
that's where they thought they saw it from? That's what I thought. Um, nobody that I knew of was doing really television ads at the time. The only mm-hmm. thing I could think of is there was somebody, and I'm blanking on who it was right now. This is so many years ago that would do these like um, these spots on like CTV or like the the like A Channel in the morning or oh, you yeah. know those morning slots. Like, mm-hmm. and I can't, I'm blanking now on which local station it was. Um, so there was one guy that was doing those pretty regularly. So maybe it was that. Um, but it was definitely, definitely really interesting to kind of see, um, what people would respond to and, and whether or not they really understood whether, where they heard about us or where it was resonating. So, um, it's funny because I I do kind of miss that offline world sometimes because of the actual real human interaction you get, um, which you don't get as much of when you're working at a tech startup. But then on the other side of the coin, you get a lot more data in terms of, um, you know, behavioral data, right? In terms of how they're interacting with your product. So pros and cons of both, I guess. Yes. So, you know, several years have gone by after you were doing the business and marketing for the martial arts students. And now you're currently the marketing director at Uberflip. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to tell us what it is? Like what is Uberflip? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually joined the team at Uberflip uh, just over a year ago. Um, so I, at that time, I was kind of transitioning out of um, my startup that I was sort of working on, which I know I know this in the questions, so I'll expand upon that later. Um, but uh, and I was kind of transitioning out of the day to day operations there. I was kind of consulting a little bit. Um, ended up meeting the guys at Uberflip uh, last August. I believe it was. And, um, you know, to be totally honest with you, when I first met them, and I've told them this before, so I'm, al- I'm allowed to tell you guys, <laughs> I really was not interested at all. <laughs> I And I only met them because the person that introduced us was like, oh, you really need to meet these these guys. They're doing some pretty cool things. Um, but, you know, what Uberflip was doing at that time was very simple. They were taking these PDFs. Um, and they were basically provided a tool that would convert PDFs into what they called flipbooks, um, which essentially are like interactive versions of the PDF where you can add video, you can add social widgets, there's flipbooks metrics included um, into it. Uh, and they had a lot of customers that were like publishers or, you know, marketers that were looking to do this for their ebooks um, or, you know, even businesses that were turning catalogs into these flipbooks. And, you know, at the time I thought, hey, like that's interesting. Um, but, you know, I don't really care about PDFs. That was sort of my mindset at the time. Uh, and then when I met with them, they kind of showed me what was in the pipeline moving forward, and which is really what we're focused on right now. So literally the day I joined Uberflip is when they launched sort of the platform as it is now. So they went from that PDF tool to a full-on sort of marketing or content marketing platform. And really what we do now is we help marketers do two things. Number one, we help you aggregate all of your content into sort of one sort of slick front end that you can create as a marketer. And on the back end of that, we give you a lot of the lead generation tools that you need in order to actually capture data, capture leads, capture email addresses. Um, and then the whole thing works with your marketing automation system. So if you're using something like HubSpot or Marketo or Eloqua um, or Pardot or Acton, one of the many marketing automation softwares out there, um, all of the data that you get through Uberflip gets automatically shuttled into your marketing automation software. So 
you kind of have the ability to um, really understand how people are consuming your content. Um, so, you know, whether it's blog posts or ebooks or um, any type of content, video content, social content, all, all of that kind of stuff. Wow, they've gone a long way. I remember um, hearing about them just around the same time that uh, you did. And um, mm-hmm. so that's really cool to see the growth out of that startup. So how, how have you been growing the product from your end? Yeah, so it's um, it's been pretty crazy. So like I said, I, I literally joined the day they launched Hubs, which is sort of the new platform. Um, and it was it was almost like starting, it was like starting from scratch, basically, um, except there was the added um, complexity of the fact that we had all of this Flipbooks business still powering the company because, you know, at that point, the guys had scaled the company to, you know, a few million dollars in ARR and they were doing really well with the Flipbooks business and all of a sudden we're introducing this whole new element and to a degree it's also targeting a bit of a different customer base, right, whereas the Flipbook was really, you know, partly targeting publishers, kind of getting into marketers, whereas the Uberflip platform as it is now is really focused on marketers. And if you want to get really sort of nitty-gritty, it's marketers that have embraced content marketing specifically, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So that was really interesting. And even now when I look at sort of where the platform was when I initially joined like a year and a bit ago to where where it is now, it's, it's developed in such a huge way. I mean, at first... The the real value prop at first is around that aggregation piece. So, you know, connect all of your content, aggregate it into one, you know, really good looking content hub, and then you can use that in order to leverage um, leverage your content for better lead generation. But, you know, now we've gotten so much more sophisticated with a lot of the integrations that we're working with. We've gotten a lot more sophisticated with the tools in the back end of the platform. And it's really now a marketer's best friend. So the idea is that like as a marketer you can go in and you can do all of this stuff that normally takes you know takes you six weeks to wait for your developer to go do it, right? So um, you know, for example, you know, if you're a marketer at you know, mid-market B2B company or let's say even a bigger enterprise, how long is it going to take you to get a developer to get in there to change a button on your blog? Like for some companies, that takes them a month and a half. It's mm-hmm. insane. Um, how long is it going to take you to get somebody to put in a nested form somewhere, right? Um, how long does it take you to, you know, get somebody to put a landing page up to gate an ebook? Right, so all of that stuff is stuff that marketers can do through the platform, and it's super duper easy, and it plugs right into your ecosystem. So um, that's really the direction that the platform's kind of gone in um, over the last, I would say, six to seven months. It's really been going much more towards that lead generation component, that metrics component, and really empowering the marketer to kind of do everything without sort of being shackled by the IT department. What are some of the best distribution channels uh, you've seen work at Uberflip? So we're constantly trying new things. Um, we What works really well for us from a content perspective because we do a lot of our lead gen is through our content marketing so we do a lot of webinars we do a lot of ebooks um and that works really well for well for us because we know if somebody comes in to a webinar or an ebook about a particular topic that they're interested in they're more than likely a pretty qualified lead for us um and for those in particular promoted tweets have actually worked quite well for us um linkedin that has actually worked quite well for us as well um the people we get from linkedin are generally pretty qualified linkedin is good too because you can get hyper targeted mm-hmm. which um which you can do on some other platforms as well but you know depending on 
what it is that you're targeting. Like, I mean, for us, you know, B2B is, is really where we're at, right? So um, for us, LinkedIn works really well. Uh, you know, we just launched a free tool. So we're kind of playing around to see how that works. Um, so we kind of created this out of our Flipbooks product. So we launched what we're calling an, e is an ebook generator. So if you go to uberflip.com slash ebook, you can check it out. Um, basically, it just lets you, you don't have to sign up, it just lets you upload a PDF and it just lets you convert it to this cool little flipbook. And then you have a link where you can share it. Um, it's a really lightweight version of the platform, but we kind of wanted to just create a free tool and put it out there and see if, if we get a little bit of traction out of that. So we're playing around with sort of distribution channels like that. Um, and then uh, and then we do have a few staple things that we have in our in our marketing mix. I mean, we still do a little bit of a little bit of uh, CPC. We do some retargeting um, to the point where it's like it's efficient and it's pulling in leads. Um, but we're we're constantly trying new stuff. I don't know. I mean, have you guys you guys do this stuff as much as I do? Have you guys seen any interesting distribution channels work for you lately? I mean, I think this would be Franco's domain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything you mentioned there is uh, is kind of where I like to play an experiment around. Yeah. Too. Um, so yeah, nothing, no, no crazy runaway hits that I can share, unfortunately. Yeah. No, I, I yeah, I hear you. There's but, everything seems to be working fairly well, but we haven't found any like, oh my god, this is amazing. Exactly. And, yeah, and to be honest with you, like if I do find that channel, I probably wouldn't share it with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, I, I think LinkedIn's probably the best, just because it's the most, you know, like you. That's that's where people are serious. I feel, uh, you know, yeah. if, if you're gonna spend some ads in this kind of space, definitely LinkedIn. Uh, you know, besides yeah. remarketing. So you've recently uh, boosted your blog subscribers by nine percent in one month. Um, would you be Would you be able to share with us how you achieve this? Oh, that's actually nine hundred percent in one month, my friend. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, it was a nine x increase. It was crazy. Not Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's funny. We, so part of our platform, so let me just sort of step back a little bit. So Uberflip uses Uberflip as like a fundamental part of our marketing strategy. So we actually use our, our platform regularly. So we have our own content hub, just like our customers do. We use it to generate leads just like our customers do. Um, and we, we obviously measure our results just like our customers do. Um, so one of the one of the tools that you have in the Uberflip backend is something called an overlay CTA, um, and basically what it is is, and I can send you guys a link so you can check it out. But essentially what it is is it's basically like a pop up that you can put in, um, and you can set it to uh, be like gate a piece of content. So you can set it so that somebody can't dismiss it. They have to fill it out in order to access that piece of content. So let's say you have an ebook or a video or something that you want to gate. You can use that overlay or that pop-up as a way to gate that piece of content. The way we used it to boost our subscribers is we said that, you know, it was still, you'd still be able to dismiss it. And we just basically used it as a, as a pop-up in front of, in front of our blog. And there's a few different settings there. So um, you can set it so that it uh, there's a delay before it actually comes up. So same as if you were using something like Bounce Exchange or Conversion Monk. Um, so we set a 60 second delay. So if somebody's reading a blog post, um, the little pop up will come up in 60 seconds. It's a really short form. It basically just you know asks them if they want to be a subscriber. We'll send them all sorts of cool stuff if they do, um, and or or it says no thanks and they can. 
dismiss it right away. So that's essentially what it is. It's, it's basically a pop-up. Um, we call it an overlay CTA. Um, and it's funny. I wrote the post about boosting our subscribers by 9x in one month. And um, I, I put it right in there. I mean, pop-ups are like there's a love-hate thing with pop-ups, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you guys have your opinions on them and I definitely go through a whole love-hate thing with them I mean they're they can be super duper effective but on the other side of the coin they can be super duper annoying too right um so that's sort of something that we're still experimenting with in terms of like where we place it and you know what the delay is on it and when we want it to pop up but the great part is I mean we didn't need our devs to do that we didn't need to install tracking code we didn't need to really do anything we just kind of went into uberflip and we threw it up there one day and then you know, we waited a month and our marketing team, you know, boosted subscribers by 900%. So it was pretty, um, it was a pretty effective test. That's awesome. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so, so previous to Uberflip, you'd co-founded uh, two different startups. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of chunk them one at a time. So the first one was Wedding Republic. So what is Wedding, Re- Wedding Republic and how did you put the first version of the service together? Yeah, absolutely. So Wedding Republic, uh, is uh, basically an online cash gift registry. It's essentially like a Kickstarter style of registry where if you're getting married and you don't need the toaster and the tea towels or you know the stuff that you traditionally get somewhere like the Bay or Macy's if you're in the States, um, you can go on Wedding Republic, you can register for things like honeymoons, house down payments, and people can chip in and contribute towards those gifts. And at the end of the day, the couple basically just gets cash. Um, really sort of simple concept and we, I mean, when we initially started talking about it, we were more sort of talking about the overall sort of gifting space. Um, but, you know, it really made sense to start in the wedding industry because that was the biggest market, right? Mm-hmm. Multi, multi-billion dollar industry, lots of cash. That's the biggest chunk of the gift giving market is, is around weddings and wedding registries. So that's really where we went. Um, and then the first version of it was really... Uh, I wouldn't even call it an application. It was like a hacked together version of the site with, you know, using PayPal <laughs> essentially as um, to just sort of process the payments. So we kind of did a, a first level prototype um, just to sort of see if anybody would even sign up. And, you know, after the first little while, it looked like there was something there. Um, the wedding industry is tricky, though. It's 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 one of those industries where... It's really, really fragmented, but it's also really, really saturated. Um, and the users within the wedding industry as well, like it's hard to communicate the pain points to somebody that hasn't fully experienced the pain points yet. And by the time they experience them, it's too late because the wedding's already happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, so when we were doing a lot of our customer dev, like, you know, when we talked to people who had just gotten married, everybody was like, oh my God, I wish this existed when, when I got married. But when you're talking to people that are, that were just getting engaged, yeah, some of them were like, this is great. Some of them are like, oh, well, yeah, I don't, I don't know yet because they don't know how horrible the experience is until they go through it. Right. Yeah. You can't really give them a business card that says come back next time. Cause <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <just> sounds terrible. <laughs> exactly. And so I think you guys uh, also raised a bit of money on, uh, on that startup, correct? Yeah, we did. We did. We raised an angel round, um, and you know, we were able. We were basically able to take that and kind of. 
build it out to see sort of number one, what, what's the future of the company? So, um, is this going to be a company that, you know, we raise a little bit of money and then, you know, we're, we're able to take it to the next level, raise even more money in the wedding industry and kind of get that explosive growth that we're all kind of looking for. Um, but you know, it became clear as we did that, that, you know, it really was sort of turning into more of a lifestyle business, um, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with, but you know, I, I don't know that I see myself, you know, in the wedding industry for the rest of my life. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and you guys know me that that's, that's not really my, my, uh, my huge passion is definitely not the wedding industry. Um, that being said though, like there's still, I think a lot of opportunity in this space, but I think that the tricky thing with it is it's, it's one of those things that everybody wants to fix, but it's n- it's not going to get fixed. Do you know what I mean? So since we launched Wedding Republic, I can probably name at least two dozen competitors in the last probably two years alone that have launched. Um, and yeah, it's, it's insane. Like it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, most of which by the way are non-existent. So, you know, a lot of them will launch and then they just realize that there's, you know, it's incredibly expensive to acquire customers unless you have, you know, the right partnerships like, like we do, we ended up hooking up with a strategic partner. Um, based out of New York, and they help with customer acquisition. So um, there's, you know, a lot of people go into the wedding industry wanting to fix it because they had such a horrible experience with it. Um, but then, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. So that's that's kind of the tricky part. There's so many, so many big factors and so many big players, um, and then so many small players that are just making lots of noise. So it's hard to get through to anybody. Um, so it's uh, it's probably, and I've dabbled in a lot of industries it's probably one of the toughest industries i've ever ever experienced wow so what's the current status of uh, wedding republic so it is it is going um like like i mentioned before we have um hooked up with a partner based out of new york city so um we're working with them in terms of acquisition we i've stepped out of the day-to-day stuff um and we have a couple of people that are kind of managing general operations for it mm-hmm. um and you know like i said it's it really is more of that sort of lifestyle type business as opposed to that explosive growth um that we were, you know, initially had our, our mindset on. And initially we thought, so wedding industry is huge. Of course there's that opportunity, um, which I think everybody thinks when they go into this type of industry, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the reality of it and the mechanics of it, it just, uh, just doesn't allow for a lot of room to have those kinds of major growth opportunities within it. And so speaking of a huge wedding industry, then, then you guys came up with, uh, with Snappable. So what is Snappable and, uh, and how are you trying to reach some, I guess, a similar market? Yeah. So Snappable was really, um, it's funny. Snappable was sort of a, something that I had been playing around with in terms of ideas. And I chatted with Andrew Draper about who I know you guys just had on the show. Yep. Um, super entertaining to listen to, by the way. We're going to get Mark on next. You should get Mark on. Mark is awesome. He doesn't know it's coming unless he listens to this. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So it's something that Andrew and I, yeah, just sort of chatted about and we started playing around with it. Snappable really, I mean, to me, the wedding industry was a great place to try it out. Um, I feel like there's probably there was probably sort of a beyond weddings and just general event space 
type stuff, which is sort of where we were looking eventually to kind of take it. Um, that, and I mean, we already had sort of a built-in audience, right? So with Wedding Republic, so it kind of made mm -hmm. sense to try it out in the wedding space first. Um, but it's funny because really quickly and much more quickly with Snappable than with Wedding Republic, I saw the same sort of pattern happen, right? So we launched Snappable within a month or two. We saw a dozen, maybe more, different apps launch that did exactly the same thing, all targeted on the wedding industry. Um, and when I look back on those now, um, you know, I can see that they basically figured out probably a lot later than we did that, okay, this is not going to be, again, that explosive growth type company, that billion-dollar company, right? It's not It's not going to be that because there are so many different options available to you. There are so many more mainstream apps available to you. Um, and the reality is because you have all of those big players in the wedding industry, very few of the smaller have that opportunity to make any headway because the bigger players keep driving cost of acquisition up, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, nobody could figure out being able to onboard people in a – more viral way in the wedding industry. So just to, I just realized I didn't actually say what Snappable was. Um, so Snappable was essentially like a photo sharing app, but um, contained to sort of a private event like a wedding or any other event. Um, and there were certain other cool features, like there was a geofencing features where we would basically pick up all of the photos within a specific area. Um, and I know Mark's still playing around with it. And it's funny, it's actually still up and running. It's still making money. Um, yeah. But none of us are really doing anything with it except for Mark kind of, you know, fiddling around with uh, with the code a little bit. So <laughs> it's it's pretty hilarious. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still it's still out there. So if anybody does have an event or a wedding coming up and they need a private photo app for it, definitely check it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think end of the day, it was really about, you know, we needed to figure out if this was going to be that billion dollar idea. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't that. And thankfully we could figure that out a lot faster because I'd already seen the pattern sort of once with Wedding Republic. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Snappable was kind of, you know, that same pattern where, you know, it's a really good idea on the outset, but then you see all of these other apps pop up um, and none of them can figure out virality in the wedding industry. And the reason for that, I think, is because just the way wedding funnels work, right? So, um, you know, if you go to a wedding, sure, there might be, you know, five or six other couples at that wedding that might be getting married, but they're probably not getting married within the next year. And then to be able to track that over the course of the next year, it's tough. It's not, it's not as instant as a lot of other sort of consumer apps. Yeah, absolutely. It's a super long sales cycle. It's super long. Yeah. Um, so, so you've also done a ton of blogging, uh, being featured almost everywhere, um, but mostly, <laughs> mostly on the Huffington Post. So, how did you start blogging uh, with them, and and you know, how do you get the opportunity, or how do you go out and find the opportunity to start blogging in front of a large audience? That's funny. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Huffington Post. I haven't actually written one for them in a while. I probably should do that. Uh, I think. Sorry, with blog... didn't mean to bring it back up. <laughs> no, no, no. You, just, you reminded me of my to-do list. Franco. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think blogging is a great way to get, a, get your message out. Um, but I think the trickiest part about it is that you have to be really cognizant of what you're writing and how well you're presenting it. Um, so, 
you know, for me, the reason that I do get a lot of opportunities, and I'm super lucky, I, I get a lot, a lot of opportunities to write for some really great publications. I mean, there's the Huffington Post, but, you know, I also write for Content Marketing Institute. I write for Marketing Profs. Um, you know, I, I had a post on the Salesforce blog, which was picked up by Forbes. Like, some really um, heavyweight publications, uh, Entrepreneur.com recently as well. Um, and I think the best way to get it is to show that you're a quality writer, to begin with, um, all of them want to see samples of your work. All of them want to see samples of, of whether or not you're going to actually be able to write something that is going to match what their audience is expecting. Um, so that's really where, where I think it starts. And if, if you haven't had that opportunity before, I think just start writing whether it's on your own Medium account or um, whether it's you know a, a local blog or whatever it is. Um, you have to have samples of your work out there in order to get featured. And when you do write, you have to take the time to craft your content in a way that um, resonates not only with the people that you're trying to talk to, but the general audience of that particular publication. There's actually a really great book by, do you guys know who Anne Handley is? Yes. Yeah, so um, Anne, Anne is awesome. She's the chief content um, chief content officer at uh, Marketing Profs. Um, she recently wrote a book called Everybody Writes. And uh, in it, she basically says that everybody has the capacity to become a ridiculously good writer. Not necessarily a ridiculously great writer, but a ridiculously good writer. Um, but the problem is nobody takes the time to sit down and learn how to do that. So I think if you're going to if you're going to use content marketing as part of your strategy, which in some cases works really well, in other cases it might not be the right move, um, you definitely need to uh, need to really hone that craft. Um, so, so I just got two sort of related questions for you then. Um, where will you be in 10 years and, and what will you be doing? Where will I be in 10 years? Yeah. I, I don't know where I'll be in 10 years. I will hopefully be somewhere warmer, so not in <laughs> Canada. <laughs> That's the goal, somewhere where winter does not exist. Um, and what will I be doing? Hopefully I'll be doing something something techy, something startup-y, um, something that, uh, that lets me – something that lets me take advantage of sort of all of my brain – if that makes sense. <laughs> um, I think a lot of the times we get really focused on our particular niches and our particular things that we're focused on on a day-to-day -day -day basis that we sort of forget to to kind of expand beyond that and reach a little bit further. So um, maybe moving into more operational stuff, maybe running my own startup again at that point, maybe delve back into that world. So I don't know. Are there any uh, technologies or, or markets that are pretty interesting to you? Do you see spots with a lot of opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's still a ton of opportunity in a lot of different areas. One of the areas that I've just always gravitated towards, um, and this I think partly ties back into my sort of martial arts background and partly ties back into what I was interested in in school, is um, I'm really into the whole quantified self movement. Yeah. Um, really sort of like I, I geek out on a lot of like the biology, the biohacking stuff, the nutrition stuff. Like I, I like a lot of that stuff. Um, so I can see myself kind of doing something in that space down the road. Um, and then I think it almost ties in as well, like to a degree, some, there's some overlap as well around kind of the internet of things and getting into some of that kind of stuff. I mean, I think there's so much there, right, that I can't even begin to wrap my head around it. Yeah, absolutely.
So besides Uberflip, what devices, apps, tools, or books are you really obsessed with right now? Okay. Uh, let me think here. Um, books. Uh, best book I've read in a while. I'll give you two books. Um, ben Horowitz's The the Hard Thing About Hard Things. Have you, either of you guys read that? No, I haven't. It's on the to-do list. It's amazing. So by far, like one of the best business books I've ever read. Really, 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 really solid. Really good. Um, not only is just the general sort of advice and guidelines that he gives really good, but it's also a really cool history lesson to a degree <laughs> um, in terms of like when he was running his startup and, you know, everything that happened in sort of that time frame and kind of the, the 80s, 90s, sort of early 2000s. Like it was, it was really cool, really cool read, really great business book. Um, and then the other book that I would recommend, uh, as, aside from Anne's Everybody Writes, of course, um, the other book I would recommend is The Checklist Manifesto. Oh, which, yes. yeah, I don't, know if, I don't know if you guys have heard of it or read it, but it's by um, Atul Gawande, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, really solid book. I think everybody needs to read it. Um, and it sounds boring because it sounds like it's all about checklists, but it's really not. <laughs> so <laughs> highly recommend. Um, and then in terms of apps, uh, what is on my phone right now that I'm obsessed with? Um, I'm obsessed with my day one app because I started doing a thing where I journal at the end of every day. So that's actually been really helpful for me. Um, and I'm also on a kick, um, with Lyft. Have you guys checked out Lyft at all? No. Yeah, I, I started using it. Um, I was going strong for like two weeks and kind of dropped off to be honest. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I do that too. I go in waves with it. So right now I'm on a, I'm on like a Lyft kick. <laughs> um, but I find, I find what I do is I end up using it really solidly for like you know whatever it is a couple of months and then when I find that I can still keep a good groove then I kind of stop checking in and I just keep going and then you sort of fall off your routine for a little while and then I find I always go back to Lyft to kind of get me back on my routine but then once I'm back on it you kind of stop using it I don't know if that's how you found yeah I I have like the generic ones but uh, I was using it strong and then I just really just stopped using that uh, I, kept, I kept getting the notifications I'm like oh, I'll do it later I'll do it later and then yeah yeah but um, I've heard nothing but good things about it and I, I should actually get back into it it's um it's a good app yeah no I like it um so that that does good things for me and I the other one that is is good is uh headspace which I'm liking right now as well which is um, basically like a meditation app we'll have to check that out I haven't heard of it headspace Yes, it is. You basically download a bunch of different guided meditations, takes you through it. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. I found I've recognized that I'm not able to meditate on my own for more than a few minutes. I need somebody to like guide me through it. Otherwise, my mind just totally wanders, <laughs> and I my my entrepreneur ADD kicks in. Awesome. Well, it was great to have you uh, on the show. Thanks a lot for your time, Hannah. It was an interesting uh, episode. Oh no worries. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Hack to Start, and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.